add in some urgency, painting a picture of what the future state could look like, add in sort of a bit more incentive for people to get to the end of the story. Hello, listener, and welcome to episode 90, that's 9-0, of Good Copy, Bad Copy, the B2B copywriting podcast. This month, we're talking about how storytelling, data, and customer insights all fit together. In a little while, Dr. Christine Bailey, the CMO at Valator, will share the structure she uses to strengthen a story with data. I'm David McGuire, Creative Director at Radix Communications, and here, joining us from Seattle by the magic of Zoom, is Ramon Vanden Bruhl, Copy Director at Yesler, which is part of Accenture Interactive. Welcome, Ramon. Thanks, David. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. How, how are things? How's, uh, how is everything in the, in the States, kind of COVID and everything? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're muddling through. Uh, for me, it's not that much of a change. I've, I was working remotely uh, pretty much full time before the pandemic hit. And so I'm actually a little less lonely during the day because now I've got uh, my wife and my daughter here with me most of the day, too. So it used to be just me and the dogs. Oh, that's nice to nice to hear that it, it's worked out well for, uh, for for someone. And and I mean, Yesler was was already a, a big agency, but now now part of Accenture. So that that's massive, right? Yeah, it's a big change, and and you know, change is always exciting and and always a little scary. It's uh, there's a, a lot of big differences between working for a company with 500 employees and then going to one that has 500,000. But it's also um, it's like a treasure chest of resources that we get to play with now. So uh, that's very exciting. Oh, that, that, that does sound great. Uh, listener, as ever, we're doing our best to bring you a great episode, but inevitably we're somewhat limited with what we can do audio-wise, thanks to the wonders of coronavirus. So apologies if the sound quality isn't what you'd usually expect. Uh, we do have a packed episode for you, and we really want to know what you think. So please do get in touch on Twitter. Or by email. Podcast at radix-communications.com. Those are new. Right, before we get started, we have a little announcement to make. Ramon, will you do the honours, please? Voting is now open for the best B2B content of 2020. We've compiled nominations from across the industry, and now it's up to you, fair listener, to choose this year's best piece of B2B content. No pressure. Just make your way to radix-communications.com and cast your vote. Ramon, what are you looking for in a winner? You know, I like content that's engaging. I want to make sure that somebody's going to read it all the way to the end and teach them something that they need to know. Have you seen something that you, you like the look of this year? I see um, uh, so much content, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so much of it is great. Um, so it's hard to pick uh, anything uh, just off the top of my head. But I will say, like I say, I like it to be... Um, this is content with purpose, right? So uh, it's you know it's it it can't be just a fun read. At the end of it, it has to give people some substance. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good approach. And I think in this year of, of all years, I'm kind of hoping that the, that the winner's going to end up being something um, 
that really means something. But, you know, ultimately, it's up to the listener. You know, last year, the winner was Tinder for Cows, literally. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's see if we can uh, if we can get over that bar uh, this year. As people who write B2B content for a living, uh, you and I know that a strong story and compelling real-world data are both key elements in creating something that works. Uh, David, you've been talking to someone who has a clear structure for combining the two. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Dr. Christine Bailey is CMO and Managing Director for SMB Business in the UK and Ireland uh, for the payments tech company Valata. And earlier this year, I heard her speak at B2B Ignite, and she shared this really interesting structured approach uh, for taking stories and kind of infusing them with data. Uh, now, Chris has a new book out on customer insight strategies, which is literally what her doctorate's in. So I thought it'd be quite a good moment to talk to her about all of that in one go. I started by asking her, which comes first, the data or the story? the famous chicken in the egg well I can tell you how I start and I always start when I when I have to tell a story I think in two ways so first of all just at a really simple level every story has to have a beginning a middle and an end Mm -hmm. and you're going to need data points at each stage of that journey so that's kind of the starting point is you know every good story starts you know fairy tales once upon a time you set the scene you kind of lay out the store you get people you add you have some familiarity And that's normally where you're going to want to add in some data points to kind of build up that picture of reality that people will feel comfortable with. And then in the middle of the story, that's when you're going to add in some urgency, add in some sort of painting a picture of what the future state could look like, um, add in sort of a bit more incentive for people to get to the end of the story. And then again, we, you know, with some data points. And then at the end of the story, you know, it's the, the happy ever after, you know, when people, you know, go with what you proposed. That's a really simple outline. But in a business setting, the most fabulous course I, training course I did with Mandel Communications taught me about the SIPAB model. And this is an acronym of um, SCIPAB. And I always use that as my starting point. Um, so, the S stands for situation. So think about what I just said about the beginning of the story, setting the scene. Again, you, you sort of want people to be fairly sort of familiar. So when I was doing my talk at um, Ignite, I set the scene about, um, you know, a digitally connected world. You know, get, I gave in some stats about how many people are accessing the internet, how many people are using social media, you know, just sort of some comfort with uh, what the world looks like. And then And then you want to add in the C, which is the complication. So you've got this sort of nice, cozy situation that we're all familiar with. And there's a but, and that's the complication. And my complication, yeah, there's always a but. So my complication in this case was that data never sleeps. We're actually, we're absolutely drowning in data. you know, we've got from Domo's infographic, you know, data never sleeps. What happens every single minute online? You know, we're sending 18 million texts. We're, you know, we're watching four and a half million videos. So that's the complication. And added to that is another stat. 83% of marketers feel, feel data blind because of the overwhelming amount of data that they're faced with. So that's the complication. Mm-hmm. And the implication 
okay, what happens as a result of the digitally connected world and the abundance in data? Well, connected with that, of course, is the rise in marketing technology. Now, there you start to see, okay, there is some goodness in here. The implication of those of that complication is there's an opportunity uh, for marketers. And if we, and then I talk about Scott Brinker's uh, Martech infographic that he does every year. So you've now got 8,000 um, Martech solutions, and no surprise to me at all, data is the fastest growing category. So the highest growth, 25% year on year growth. And then you go into P, which is the position. Okay, so. You've got the situation, you've got the complication, you've seen the potential implication of this. What's your position on this now? So now you get to the middle of the story. You're starting to paint some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. What's the goodness that can come out of this? Well, the goodness in this case is marketers have always struggled with the data analytical side, and they overcame that by hiring in data scientists into the team. But that doesn't work on a couple of levels necessarily because A, they're hard to find and B, they're not always the best cultural fit. But now with the democratization of uh, MarTech technology and the abundance of data, you can get insights and analytics at the click of a button. So marketers can now get insights and analytics at the click of a button, which frees them up to use their creativity and you know to be able to focus on telling the story. And then... I loaded on a bit more of the position. Insights are a good thing. You know, don't, not, not something to be afraid of. And I talked about the pot of gold, you know, where um, companies perform better if they have insights. That comes from Forrester's insights, uh, insight-driven businesses. And um, also, we've got lots of data from um, e-consultancy about why marketers um, perform better when they use multiple data points. And finally... Um, data gives us certainty. You know, we, right now, we need certainty. It's a very uncertain world. So we need some data points. And we've also been conditioned to believe that the more points of evidence we have, the more likely people are to believe us. So that's another reason why it's good to use data and insights in our story. Okay, now I get on to the next letter, A, for action. Okay, you've told me about the situation, the digitally connected world. You told me the complication, we're, we're drowning in data. The implication though, lots of lovely MarTech that's going to help us. Our position is it's good to use insight because um, it frees us up to focus more on the creativity and the storytelling. Okay, what action am I going to take now? And that's where we get into talking about the fact that stories will always influence more than data. Because data points are transactional, people don't remember them. And at that point, I ask people, can you remember what percentage of people are data blind because they're drowning in data? I only said it three slides back. Can you remember it? I can't, no. <laughs> so, but isn't it? it? It's stories stir us and numbers numb us, I, I guess. It's those two things together, yeah. Absolutely. So then we talk about, and I've got, you know, I had lots of lovely examples of, you know, Philip Pullman and Game of Thrones and, you know, why, why stories are such a good thing. And from um, Yuval Noah Harari about, in his book Sapien about, um, you know, humanity's ability to tell stories is what sets us apart from other species. So, you know, lots of, uh, lots of good things about um, the, the benefits of telling stories. And I talk about, you know, then every good story starts with the beginning, the middle and the end. And... And then helping people uh, where, you know, you need data points at each stage of your story. Where can you get them from? And then we talk about where you get insights from and, you know, how you can get something in there. And then usually 
you need to add in a little bit of humour, you know, just a bit of humour or curiosity to help people get to the end. So I normally add in some funny stories of, you know, what can go wrong um, if, uh, you know, if you don't, if you just blindly follow your data and, um, and you know, you use the wrong kind of a- attribution. And then you get to the last one, which is the benefit. So finally, what is the, what is the, what's going to be, what's waiting for me, you know, if I get to the end of the story? And, and that's where I'll just summarize by saying, you know, the world is, is increasingly more digital. We're going to get more and more data points, but the democratization of MarTech and data has enabled uh, us to tell stories, but every decision and story can be backed by insights and, and, and data-driven evidence. And then if you're smart, you're, you'll add in some curiosity, some anticipation, some humor, and you know, you'll get to that pot of gold at the end. So that's the framework, SIPAD. Situation, complication, implication, position, action, benefit. Great. Thank you. That's really helpful. And it's really interesting how that kind of, you know, in some cases, you know, will sort of match the, you know, a, a three-act story structure and um, the things that that people do in kind of storytelling, you know, technique, like the complication is, you know, is very much like the inciting incident in a in, in a classic story and, and, and that kind of thing. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um Keen to talk about your new book and where that fits in with this, because that's customer insight strategies. So where does the kind of customer insight fit into the the kind of the storytelling and the the data piece? How does that all fit together? Yeah, so the the book is, the, the sort of subtitle of the book is How to Understand Your Audience and Create Remarkable Marketing. And those that know me will always know I'm a champion from the customer. The, the, the bigger the company, the bigger the marketing department gets, the further away you get from the customer. True. And we get, you know, too absorbed with our own internal messaging and, and what we want to broadcast out to the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that just doesn't wash in today's world. The customer is in control. But customer insights is something that I think can be used throughout every stage um, of the customer journey. So I talk about when I um, I did a doctorate in customer insight back in uh, 2008. And at the time, um, I created this model which said, okay, where are we getting our data from? And I had five categories of sources of data. And they, they are, they're, they're the same today. I've just updated them because we mm-hmm. didn't have all of the digital data, um, the digital footprint data that we have now. But that's basically the sources of data are your competitors, your customers, the markets, employees, and your channel partners. And from there, I said, well, what do we mean by customer insight? And that, that I identified like four main types of customer insight, which is market predictions, um, customer segments, uh, propensity models, and customer analytics. And then those are being used across the organization. But if I'm just to illustrate, okay, in a marketing context, how would you use insights? Well, right at the beginning, to help you understand setting a mission statement with purpose and a value proposition that matters to customers. Because that's so current in today's world is you've got to have a mission and a purpose, and it it needs to be something that your audience cares about and not just something that the company cares about. So, for example, at Valator, our mission is to make buying and selling easy. The book kind of builds up the journey through marketing where it will talk about how you find your why. So I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek. He's got this brilliant TED talk Mm. called Finding Your Why. And Mm. he says most companies are good about saying what they do and how they do it, but they're really bad 
at understanding why they do it and articulating that. So insights will help you understand the customer's why and help you understand your own why. What you were saying, of course, you know, you kind of got your, your five data sources. Um, and only, I guess, would you say sort of one of those is the the customer themselves? I think, you know, the research that we've done very much backs up what you said, where, you know, in B2B contexts, you know, 78% of marketers have some difficulty getting access to, to customers. So from that point of view, finding out what your customer cares about, there are, if you like, other routes around just asking the just asking the customer, I guess, is one of them. But there are other ways to get that data, right? Absolutely. And human beings are funny things. They what they say they like is not necessarily how they behave. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I had a little cartoon in my presentation with a doctor smoking and drinking. You know, uh, telling somebody that they really must, you know, move to a clean living lifestyle, and the doctor's mm-hmm. drinking and smoking themselves. So that's why we need our insights and analytics because they show us what, how people have actually behaved. Absolutely, you should talk to your customers and get their opinion. But say what they say and what they do are not necessarily the same thing. So, for example, uh, some people like um, uh, I interviewed quite a few people for the book, and, and Cisco is you know just at the forefront of, of customer insights. And mm. one thing they they did when they were looking at um, the journey of their uh, small and medium-sized customers on their website. And they designed what they thought was the journey that somebody would take through their website. And then they did some experiments where they sat behind a glass wall and they got in a sample set of customers and they watched how they journeyed through the website. So they set them a number of tasks of things to find out and watched how they got there, completely different to how they'd imagined it. And for people that don't have access to you know that kind of that kind of technology those kinds of resources um you know obviously you know it's interesting that obviously even if you can get access to your customers they might they might not tell you the truth anyway um but i mean are there other kind of easy ways that that people can you know find valuable customer insights absolutely i mean there really is there is no excuse there are a lot of really good free analytics tools, mm-hmm. um, you know, basic level Google Analytics. You know, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot you can do for free. And then talking to customers, yes, will, will help you understand behavior, but also looking at your analytics, how, you know, the, what their journeys are on the website. But also um, there's so much you can, social listening you can do that's, you know, that, that's not particularly expensive to do the social listening. It's mm. all about understanding the audience and make sure you're listening in the right places mm-hmm. and, and to the right people. And also there's a huge amount of um, really excellent free content if you're looking in the right places. So it's about making sure you know where you're looking. And again, you listen to the right audience and, and, and keep your eyes and ears open. And there's, um, you know, you produce a lot of excellent content. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot out there. Uh, that people can listen to. And then when you've got those insights, so you, you can, as you, so you mentioned kind of how you kind of build a, you know, a value prop that makes sense to the customer first and what they, and what they, they really care about. 
are there kind of other ways that you can then, once you've got those insights, that you can sort of apply them? Uh, once you've got your value proposition, then you need to move on to um, your segmentation, understanding who you're going after and, and developing your personas. So you, you bring that segmentation to life uh, with creating the personas of real people that you know are your target audience. Mm-hmm. And then how are you going to reach them? Well, customers find us through our content. You know, the... Back in 2008, I said that inbound marketing was going to overtake outbound marketing. Unfortunately, I didn't know exactly when. So everyone's like, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, get on with doing what we're doing. More, more, more broadcast, more blasting. Mm. Um, I think, I think it was 2015 was the official tipping point where, you know, inbound over to outbound. So customers will find us through our content. But so the starting point then of creating a content marketing strategy is, What's the right content for our audience? And then once you've got the right content, how do you know it's performing? And how do you, people are terrible at, at uh, cleaning up behind them. You know, the, the old content. I know, again, I interviewed um, uh, somebody at Cisco and they said it was, it was like taking their babies away from, you know, the parents when they, when they killed off the content that nobody was reading. And, mm. you know, somebody had put so much effort into creating that beautiful piece of content, but it was, it had had its day. You know, nobody was looking mm-hmm. at it anymore. It had to go. And that's, we, we clutter all the time, don't we? We, you know, mm-hmm. so we need to clean out and understand what's performing and what's not performing. Um, and we need to understand the buyer's journey because different content is required at different stages of the buyer's journey. So it's about understanding your audience, what kind of content will resonate with them, creating that content, and then measuring and also understanding the buyer's journey. So it's not the same piece, you know, it depends what you're trying to do, where they are in their journey, and then constantly monitoring the performance of that. And you need insights for all of that. And then, and then the book sort of goes into the next chapter is around customer acquisition. Um, and do you know what that was? started out being one of the hardest chapters to write because I thought, crikey, I could write an entire book on customer acquisition. Mm. So I just focused on, I thought, four game changers um, in, in customer analytics and just sort of focused on those four, four game changers. Um, and then we looked at, uh, so that was customer acquisition. And then customer analytics is what you need for, you know, development and, um, you know, development of customers through cross-selling and upselling. And then I had a whole chapter on social because there's just so many insights that you can get and use through through social. Um, then I had, um, of course, I had to have a te- uh, chapter on technology. Um, <laughs> you can't not these days. Yeah, so I had to have a chapter on technology and then looking at uh, basically the implications of all of this for practitioners. Mm. So, um, so lots of ways you can kind of take those... Um, customer insights and apply them you know throughout your content i mean coming back i guess kind of full circle will those kind of insights then help you to tell more compelling stories in the first place as well absolutely because that helps you understand what matters to your customers and and how often do we as i say companies just they broadcast out um you know an example of um you know car insurance companies and they're putting out content about, you know, policies and, and well, basically boring stuff, you know. <laughs> Whereas talk about driverless cars, talk about the sort of future of transport. That's what's yeah. going to be more, you know, draw people to you. And another example I love because um, 
uh, I have a 12 year old daughter who absolutely loved a few years ago this. Do you remember the Dumb Ways to Die video? Oh my God, I love Dumb Ways to Die. Yeah. Right. I don't know, people always know the, the story behind that, but um, it started off with a, a California train company produced that the issue was teenagers not paying attention and, mm. you know, get, getting killed on the train tracks. So they, this California train company put out the, you know, be safe mind how you go with trains or something like that. Mm. And it was a sort of instructional video for teenagers. Well, they yeah, had that's going to work. <laughs> 60,000 views um, of right. the video that they put out. And then um, an Australian company came up with, you know, the only thing that teenagers fear more than dying is, is you know, the embarrassment of being killed in a, in a stupid way. So they created this little video, Dumb Ways to Die. And of course, the end of the video is the dumbest thing you can do is, you know, get killed larking around on a train track mm. well this was when i wrote the book they had 185 million views <laughs> of that video and for me i can't think of a better example of mm. they you know the train company that thought about broadcasting out the safety message to teenagers didn't think about their audience and the train company that did something that absolutely had their audience in mind and, and look at the results that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that you wanted to to talk about that we haven't talked about or, you know, as far as either the, the, the data and storytelling or the customer insights? Um, or shall I just say, you know, where can people get the book? And <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I can certainly say, you know, I wouldn't be in marketing if I didn't... Uh... <laughs> get your call to action in yeah call to action exactly so it's available <laughs> from the 3rd of november although you can obviously pre-order it now because we're very close to that through it's published through kogan page um so either through their website or through amazon or all the normal channels and and i would um say we we all need help we all need good ideas and i've interviewed um 33 people throughout the book who are practitioners and, and academics and i wanted the book to be for practitioners, by practitioners. I didn't want it to be like a textbook. Mm. And it's not going to tell you everything you need to know about customer insight, but it's going. It's full of stories of how practitioners have, have done it and, and their thoughts on it. Um, and at the end of each section, there's key takeaways. And then I also have a section called Feed Your Brain, which is giving people ideas of what they could do today, tomorrow, next week, just to sort of get get us get started because a lot of people they read and go yeah you know that's great but i don't know where i could start so there's ideas at the end of each chapter to um help people get started thanks chris for being so generous with your time and giving us so many approaches to think about and use ramon what stood out for you there you know um I liked when she talked about championing the customer and about not getting too absorbed in your own messaging uh, and how, because she's right, that just won't wash with today's customers. They've seen and heard all that before. Uh, I attended a seminar with uh, Robert McKee a couple of years ago where, you know, he talked about you know, his approach to storytelling and the whole hero story format, you know, the, the trough that we're all pretty much drinking from these days, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, that he talked about was that um, you can't make the stories about yourself and your products. And, and the because really those boil down to what he called boasts and promises. Mm -hmm. And they're boasts and promises that the customers have all heard before. 
and so it's very important to make the stories real about real people, about their experiences, uh, so that, uh, and less about you. Yeah. The customer's the hero of the, the story, aren't, aren't they? You know, co- I mean, it's partly that it's boastful to do it any other way, as you say, but then it's the other thing about how um, you want, particularly if it's a case study or something, the person reading it is your next customer. So the person you want them to identify with in the story is your existing customer because you want them to go, I want to be like them. You know, so that's why you have, you have to make the customer the, the hero. And it's a thing that I see, you're right, time and time again, you know, companies are just boastful about what they can do rather than letting the customer own the achievement. Exactly. That's really well put. The customer has to own the achievement. The way I try to describe it to to people is that the customer is the hero and the product is just their sword, you know, and the business challenge uh, is the dragon and the hero uses their sword to slay the dragon Um, and free people uh, bring on a new world, uh, live happily ever after, you know, all of the things that, like I say, that we're, that we're all immersing ourselves in uh, these days when it comes to storytelling. That's absolutely, I mean, I mean, the thing that I, I say in training is, you know, the brand, your brand is never Luke Skywalker. You know, the customer is always Luke Skywalker. That gives you plenty of things you can be. You know, the, 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 pr- the product can be the lightsaber or the, the X-Wing. You know, if it's more, if it's more of a, a, a consultancy-based business, you could be Obi-Wan Kenobi teaching them how to use the Force. But the brand never blows up the Death Star. You know, it's, it's always the customer that blows up the Death Star. Right, exactly. And, and, and the reason is because, like I say, customers today are bombarded with boasts and promises. They, are, uh, they can spot them a mile off. And so when you put those in the story, particularly in the cases of you know, case studies, customer evidence, oftentimes you're giving that, that piece to somebody that you've been working with for a while now to try try to close these big, mm-hmm. uh, uh, complex, expensive deals. And um, if, the, you know, if they see the same sort of thing in this thing that you call customer evidence that they've seen in all of your other advertising and marketing materials that you've, bombarding, that you've been bombarding them with over the last six months or so, um, they're going to smell a rat. You know, they're going to wonder how genuine this quote-unquote evidence is. And that's another marketing fail, if you ask me. Oh, my God, that's so true. Because it's that very late stage in the buying journey when a case study comes in and, you know, just makes them feel good about it. As you say, you know, it, it needs to do something different from what you've already done. That, that's so true. You know, a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of training, not just like, you know, I'm a copy director. I'm working with, the, with uh, you know, sometimes junior writers to get these stories done. And so there's training to do there. But there's also a lot of training to do with stakeholders as well. Because oftentimes, you know, they'll have, we'll be doing a case study and they'll want to use like a, a previous blog that was very successful, get a lot of clicks. Uh, and they basically want the case study to be another version of that blog. And I'm like, you already have the blog use that, you know, it's like, and you're probably giving the blog to the same people you're going to give this case study to. So if you make the case study, just a, a, a copy of the blog, again, it's not going to seem as genuine as what you're, you know, you're presenting it to them as evidence. Here's evidence of what you can do. 
what you may be able to do with this product, it's going to seem less like evidence to them if they can see that, wait a minute, this whole paragraph comes out of that blog that was written by the, the vendor, by the, the, the person who's trying to sell them something or the entity that's trying to sell them something. Um, again, you know, they're going to smell a rat. It's going to seem less genuine to them. And that's not good for, I mean, like I say, I, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly no uh, Dr. Christine Bailey when it comes to marketing, but it seems to me that that's the marketing fail. <laughs> Talking about, uh, about Christine, I, I think, you know, I was kind of interested in this um, kind of SIPAB structure that, that, that she's got for bringing data into a story. Now, I, I know that, that you work on an awful lot of, of case studies is that something where can you plot one to the other in terms of the the structure? Do they do they overlap? Do you think or, or not so much? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I, I mean, I definitely agree with her that you know, because like I say, I mean, that's about you know that you know I call it you know uh, engaging and substantive. You know, she calls it storytelling and data. Uh, anything you can do to make a story more concrete is always for the better. Um, right. You know, it's like, you know, we want people to relate to these stories. Numbers help people do that, particularly people whose job it is to think about numbers. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's, it's uh, what she's talking about is spot on. Um, the structure, I think, is a little more difficult. You know, it's kind of a case by case thing. Right. It sort of depends on the data and depends on the story. You know, I mean, like what she said is, you know, don't get too absorbed in your own messaging. And I think she even talked a little bit about don't get too absorbed in the data. Make sure that you're not just using putting numbers in for numbers sake. They need to it, it, it does need to overlap. They do need to support each other. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, anything that gives a structure to that is bound to be helpful. Uh, but like I say, I don't like to see people uh, getting caught up in formulas. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, formulas, are, I, I think, are useful to a, you know, to a point. I think, you know, particularly when people are, uh, you know, maybe sort of less, less experienced, you know, and, the, you know, if you've got a, a blank screen and a flashing cursor, you know, uh, and, you know, and you need to get something written, having, having a framework to work within, I, I, I think it's useful, but it's using it as a tool rather than, um, th than being bound to it, I, I, I guess. One of the things I did want to ask you is, as a uh, as a veteran of a million case studies, um, is that data point that you were talking, you know, whatever it is that you know, the data point that grounds it in reality. How easy do you find it to get that in the customer interview? Because. For me, I, you know, I talk to them and go, oh, yeah, you know, thing, it's really fast. It saved us lots of time. And I go, okay, how much time? Oh, I don't know. It saved us a lot of money. How much money has it saved you? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I've never measured. You know, and, and, and customers to me seem really reluctant to put a number on things. You know, you've, you have uh, uh, identified the, the bane of my existence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. The, the, uh, no, you're, because you're absolutely right. Um, it's very difficult to get those data points uh, for a number of reasons, uh, especially from the agency perspective. I mean, because you're right, sometimes they don't know. They, they haven't bothered to, to look. 
Um, and that gets awkward, right? It's always sort of embarrassing for the, you know, it's like they, they feel like they've done something wrong when I say, well, you know, what are your KPIs? What have you, you know, what have you measured? And they have to say, well, nothing. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so the, the, it, I don't, and the other thing too is that as a, as a, you know, working for an agency representing a customer, I'm talking to somebody who's not my customer. They're somebody else's customer. Um, and, and of course, one of the tenets of, of customer evidence and customer reference is to make the experience not a chore for the customer that you've asked to give this testimonial. So I'm not really in a position to press them very hard on things that they don't want to answer, right? So I, you know, I can ask once, I can ask again, and then I pretty much politely have to move on. Um, and sometimes they have legitimate reasons why they may have the numbers but not want to give them up. You know, they don't necessarily want their competitors to know what their costs are or how they're managing to get their costs down. They want their customers to keep, they want their competitors to keep their costs up, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, so sometimes they just don't want to give up the numbers. And so, yes, it's very difficult. Um, I can tell you the formula that I use to, to try to get it. Yeah, please. Uh, I, I ask twice in the interview um, and then I let them go. And then when, of course, you know, they're going to have a chance to review and offer revisions uh, on the draft before it's published. And I use that um, as an opportunity to ask one more time in a way that's much more specific and targeted. You know, we talk about the qualitative achievement that they were able to, to generate. Um, and then at that point, I can ask them, you know, this is really great. Is there, you know, is there any way that you could provide us with some numbers that help to, to, to illustrate this or, or put a finer point on it? And oftentimes that works, you know, oftentimes they'll give in and, and we don't get everything we ask for, but we might at least get a couple. Um, and then sometimes I'll say this too, is that sometimes, you know, the stakeholders will really, really want that number. And if they're willing, they can go in. It is their customer. They've got a relationship with them. Uh, they can press a little harder and sometimes uh, they can get the answer that we're looking for. And when Chris was talking about customer insights and how you can use them to, to keep your value prop really customer focused, is that common, do you think? I mean, certainly in the research that we've done, one of the biggest problems marketers have is not having access to their customers. And sometimes the, it feels like the bigger the organization, the further you are away from them. How do you see it? You know, that's, that's definitely true. But when you, you know, we work with some very big organizations uh, at Yesler, um, and they have a lot of resources. And so, um, yes, you know, they can get themselves kind of far away from the customer, but like, you know, most of them, you know, these are, these, these companies got to be the biggest companies in the world because they're pretty savvy. Right. Um, and, uh, so they've got the resources and they understand all that stuff that, that, that Chris is talking about, uh, at least up at the top, you know, there may be a mid level where people are just trying to get their jobs done and they don't, you know, they really want to sell their product and they think that it's all about the product. You know, if you're not, if you're not pushing those boasts and promises, you're missing an opportunity. But I think at the, at the upper levels, you know, the, the, these companies understand what needs to be done. And so we can rely on their resources a lot of times for that. And then also, too, you know, the, as she said, um, and I think this is someplace where because, um, you know, customer evidence case studies can be a little bit of an assembly line, right? You know, uh, these companies produce a lot of content. 
Um, and so I think a lot of times uh, content creators miss an opportunity. They get, they get stuck on their source material. They get stuck on the background material that they were given by the stakeholders. They get stuck on the interview that they got with the customer. And sometimes, you know, you just, you need to go outside that, you know, do some, uh, uh, do a little web research to find out what may be out there, the kinds of uh, data points that Chris is talking about that may come outside of, the, of what you've gotten from your stakeholder. Um, and look for places there because I think it, it is important to, to um, I mean, especially with the data, the data has to reinforce the, the, that, um, that customer achievement. Uh, and so, it, you know, if it can't come from the customer, it might be able to come from outside sources, or at least you can start with numbers, right? You can start with, um, you know, this industry, you know, is trying to do such and such. And, uh, you know, here's the, here's the current data. Here's the, you know, total value of, of whatever the, you know, the, that industry might be producing or things like that. And so then, even if you don't have numbers at the end to compare with that, people can do the arithmetic in their head. Before we go, it's time for the Anonymous Five, where people in key B2B personas secretly can be brutally honest about what they really think. This month, we're talking to a chief marketing officer at a large UK-based telecoms distributor. Question one. Has your role changed much over the last few years? And if so, how? What do you think is next? Yes, and in particular over the last few months, the focus now is on a completely digital experience. This has been coming for a few years, but with lockdown has also changed the sales meeting world. Now they must be completed virtually, so we have been gearing up to help our sales teams deliver a better than real life experience. We are blending virtual video presence with in-screen technologies to allow them to present and still be on screen to engage with customers. The same can be said for events and finding the best virtual platform for those to work. Lots of new platforms out there at the moment, but Core from XSEM looks to be a winner. Question two. How do you really feel about marketing technology when presumably it's not what you got into this job to do? I am a huge advocate for marketing technology. Anything that makes the process of production easier and delivery more consistent or enhances user experience is a big tick for me. Question three. What would a really terrible day at work look like? Long commute in traffic. Websites go down and no digital connections are possible. We couldn't do business in the pandemic world without digital channels. Question four. Does your role as a marketer affect how you behave as an audience? Yes, it does affect it. I am probably more critical of communications but equally more engaged when someone gets the contact right, be that an email, a DM, or some neatly curated and relevant case studies. Most are getting it more right than wrong, but I have seen some woeful examples lately of rushed comms with people expecting the pandemic to end quickly. And question five. Do you get the respect you deserve from the rest of your business? Yes, my business completely understands the essential role of marketing, and we work hand-in-hand -hand to deliver the best outcomes for our customers. We don't always get it perfect, but we always strive to improve on the last execution we did. Thank you to our mystery CMO. We've made a donation to the Downs South London Kids Walk 300 Challenge on your behalf.
Ramon, we work with marketers all the time, so we ought to know them pretty well. Did anything there surprise you? I don't know about surprise, but I did like what he said about the last question about respect from the rest of the business. Uh, and I think that um, in some ways uh, it's surprising, you know, when you look at the traditional sort of roles and relationships, uh, particularly, I think, between marketing and sales, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, but I think with MarTech and uh, and a lot of the other sort of developments that have, that have been going on in marketing and sales over the last decade or so, we are seeing a lot, uh, a tighter relationship a more productive relationship between marketing and sales. So it's good to hear that he's experiencing that. Wow. The end of the (laughs) traditional rivalry between marketing and sales, potentially. What a bombshell bombshell to uh, to end the show on. Goodness. Uh, All that remains now is to thank Dr. Christine Bailey and our anonymous CMO. Uh, And of course, thank you, Ramon, for co-hosting. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, You know, David, I've enjoyed it very much, and not just because you wrote it into the script for me. Listener, if you have any questions, thoughts, or comments, do get in touch with us on Twitter. At Radixcom. That's R-A-D-I-X-C-O-M. Or the email. Podcast at radix-communications.com. Don't forget that we do need your vote for this year's best B2B content. You can do that at radix-communications.com. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, remember, using numbers in your copy? Well, it's as easy as 3.141592653589793238. Goodbye. Bye.